Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. So welcome to this bonus episode of the Fertility Podcast, and we've collaborated with Access Fertility to talk about how they work in terms of the funding packages that they offer. We want to make sure that you have a really clear understanding of your options when it comes to self-funding your fertility treatment. And if you've been listening to the Fertility Podcast in kind of chronological order, you'll know that we have recently talked about the whole postcode lottery situation that so many people find themselves in. And whenever we talk about this, don't we, Kate? It gets such a reaction and it's so frustrating for us that it still exists. It's something that I think in both of our times, which is the seven year chunk of time we've been in this space, it has been rumbling along and improving and then getting worse and then changes happening. And we did obviously report on our uh, guest Amber Izzo and the, the kind of turnaround that she'd had with her local CCG, but it is still an ongoing problem. Yeah, it is. It's almost like you say, it's a step in the right direction, then it's a backward step again. But it was great to see with Amber how she was able to successfully campaign to ensure that um, Peterborough and Cambridgeshire CCG were able to um, put back their provision of funded IVF, which they took away a few years prior. Exactly. And hopefully other local kind of councils around the UK will look at this too. And when we talk to our guest um, in a little bit, it's really interesting because he's Scottish and we'll be talking more about the Scottish model, which you may well know about, you'll hear more about because it's very different to what exists in the UK. But Kate and I have been talking about how in the conversations we've had with clients that we've coached about their treatment as a whole, we've both had quite similar conversations where people have talked quite confidently that they have the money and that, you know, they are obviously concerned about the cost of it, but they have it, they've they've budgeted and they aren't having to borrow and go into more debt, which is always to me such a kind of impressive surprise. I'm always so relieved that people are in that position, but then I'm very aware that they're able to talk to me about it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think those are probably the people that do have a little bit of funding to access other support, extra support on top of their IVF treatment. So coming to you, coming to me. And so I agree with you. I'm always amazed at how people are able to find the money and how they do have that money aside. That said, I do have every year I I ensure that I have pro bono patients and I have one currently that is sadly in an area like Amber was in a CCG where there isn't a funded provision and therefore she and her partner aren't able to access IVF which is so so sad. And also we know from the conversations we have with you on social media that all too often you're having to borrow from family members, you're having to use credit cards, you're having to get loans and we know that it is so emotionally as well as financially involved for you and so that's why we really want to make sure you know what the options are in a way that hopefully will help answer any questions that you have because of course you can have conversations online you can have conversations with the providers but we also wanted to kind of have a conversation on your behalf so if you're looking at the self-funded route We want to explain what the ways of paying for it are. And in the UK, there are a number of different ways to pay for private fertility. And it is designed to make it more affordable and accessible if you need it. Now, two of the most popular 
our multi-cycle and refund programs. And the ideal is that this helps avoid escalating costs if more than one cycle is needed and can get some money back if the treatment is unsuccessful. Now, up until now, these programs have been provided independent from the medical clinics who carry out the treatment. So there is a natural separation of medical and financial decisions, which again is something that we've been really keen to ensure that you are aware of because it means that women and babies health is the only priority and obviously that is key here. So let's start then with what the multi-cycle program actually is. It's where a patient pays for a fixed price for a number of cycles and this cost is the same whether the cycle is successful or if none of them are. Once the patient has had the cycles there are sadly no refunds so that's it. Um, And if the first cycle is successful, the patient can't access any further treatment under that program. So just to clarify, the refund program allows patients to recoup up to 100% of their money if their treatment is unsuccessful. But refunds aren't offered if the patient is successful before the end of a full program. So that's it in a nutshell. And we will, of course, put links to more information about access fertility in the show notes. And we're going to be hearing from our guest, Professor Scott Nelson, who's going to be talking all through his involvement. Um, He's got a lot of job titles, as you'll hear. But one of the things that we're really keen to, I suppose, just focus on is when it comes to the impact of the pandemic, we have talked about how we feel things are almost back to normal, haven't we? Like the, Mm. the, the initial chaos has kind of eased, but what we're left with is is what we've been talking about as residual waiting, really, waiting. isn't it? Absolutely. Lots and lots of waiting, sadly. And we know that it had such a huge impact on fertility treatment in the UK, and, and lots of people had their treatment delayed. There's been so much more worry that people's fertility has declined. We also know that there has been this feeling of feeling aged out of being eligible for NHS or other treatments. And because of that, we're aware that there might be feelings of trying to rush things along or even getting more aggressive treatment which is what we really want to highlight the importance of always making informed decisions yeah I think you know we're seeing that aren't we that we're seeing that 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 people are potentially very concerned about the time and they are potentially making quick and ill-informed decisions without taking the time to get all the information and what we've been doing that haven't we is we've been supporting the safe campaign which was to really highlight the importance of ensuring that patients are making informed decisions when it comes to treatment options and despite feeling tempted to rush and to push their physical or mental health to their limit to get pregnant because we know that's what everybody wants to do you know when you want a baby you'll do anything but actually it's so important to just pause, take a breath and really make the right decisions. And we're very aware that it's very easy for us to say that, but if oh, just yeah, get you thinking about it. And that's really what this episode is about. We're, we're talking with Access Fertility to ensure you get a good understanding of the options for accessing fertility treatment, the ways of paying for it and the difference between the multi-cycle and the refund programs and the safest way of accessing it. And as we've been saying, the importance of not rushing your decisions and making informed choices. So we're now going to welcome Professor Scott Nelson, the Muirhead Professor of Obs and Gynae at the University of Glasgow. He's the consultant for NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Scott's also the visiting professor at the University of Bristol, Medical Director of Access Fertility and Scientific Director of the Fertility Partnership. You have a lot of job titles, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Fantastic to be here with you and Kate and, and Natalie. So yeah, it keeps me busy and also really engaged with you know patients and scientific community. So it works well busy man yeah I mean t- tell us a bit about I suppose where you 
are you mainly in the kind of academic side of it or are you more hands-on? Almost all clinical academics in the UK are have got job splits so it's a 50-50 split so essentially I spend half my time doing clinical work so that can be kind of standard you know clinics and thinking about kind of fertility patients PGD clinics we do for the whole of Scotland as well and kind of just managing that whole process through Glasgow Royal so there's about a thousand patients cycles per annum coming through there and then in the rest of the week is then based in kind of thinking about sort of academic research and questions that will help patients on their journey, both making sure that they get the best possible treatments and kind of thinking about how we can empower them to make the right best decisions for the long term. Well, we're really keen to talk more about your involvement with access to fertility. Obviously, in Scotland, the whole access to funding is so different to what patients have available to them in England. Can you tell us a bit about your involvement with them and, and, and also just your thoughts on that? because it's so annoying for people. Yeah, no, we're incredibly fortunate. You know, one of the big things that the Scottish government has done has prioritised fertility treatment. Whatever you think of Nicola Sturgeon, one of the top 10 things that she's proud of is actually what she's done for fertility. And she's very publicly said that. So we've got this amazing opportunity. Where we've got three fully funded cycles for women under the age of 40. Um, and you know, that's really, even the HFA now recognises that and says, actually, we should all be aspiring to have the same equivalence across Scotland and I realise you guys have talked about code lotteries in the past and it's really kind of there's a model there for Scotland that should be replicated you know and it's very simple but it requires huge investments we all know that those economic models work really well you invest in women and having families and makes it pays back and it pays back dividends in a huge way for years to come so yeah so it's a, it's a really good model in terms of kind of how you take that and then take access well Access fertility is just a way of being able to, again, facilitate, you know, people offsetting some of that risk. Because the reality of it is it's access enables people to think about, and it's not for everyone, but it's an option that all patients should really be aware of. You know, it can save them money. It gives them that peace of mind. And they've also got that financial safety net. And actually, what we've seen over the last year and a half, obviously, having a financial safety net is probably critical for many people. And that's why it's not an option, you know, for everyone. But actually, people just need to be aware of it. And let's say it's part of their decision making. If they're in a situation where they don't have the same as NHS Scotland funding and they've got one cycle, what do they do after that first cycle fails? Actually, that's critical because it's going to cost them money. And Scott, that, that's that's really interesting. We're going to drill down on that a bit more in a moment. But I just want to pick up on what you said there about the last year and a half and the pandemic. And how much do you think the impact on clinic closures during the start, start of the pandemic has actually had on patients' decision to self-fund rather than to wait for NHS funding? So it's, I think it's a huge effect, absolutely massive, and you can't underestimate it. And the reason for that was if you look at, even within Scotland, where we've talked about just the benefits of Scottish government funding, IVF units were essentially shut for six months within Scotland from March through to kind of having it, the first egg retrievals within the end of August and so on. And there was a coordinated approach across the four units. In contrast, you know, private units like TFP that you've talked about in Glasgow was shut for two months. Um, and so therefore, you're sitting in, you know, in Glasgow and you can't have access to IVF. You have no idea when the NHS is going to reopen. You know that there's all these other constraints that you're hearing about people being hospitalised and kind of how that happened. So you've got no idea. And it's that kind of sitting in a vacuum, hoping that it'll all be fine. And I think that that is then replicated across all of the UK as we've seen pressures applied on the NHS. People have moved, you know, within the IVF units to other acute services. And so people are thinking, when will this happen to me? And the clock is ticking. 
And actually, we all know that the sooner you have IVF and the earlier and younger that you have it, the better success rates. So I think there's a whole reason of drivers to put people into kind of self-funding and thinking, actually, we need to get on with doing this treatment as soon as possible. I think it's a huge impact. Never more so than the last 18 months has time become so prominent with what's gone on that we've just we've just discussed. So can we just talk a bit more about how it works when you are self-funding for fertility treatment? Because it is a big decision and it requires a lot financially and emotionally. Can you talk us through that a bit, Scott, that whole kind of thought process with it? Yes. So there's a variety of different mechanisms. I think the big decision is you're going to embark on doing self-funded IVF. Are you going to wait on the NHS or while waiting on your NHS cycles, are you going to, you know, self-fund, you know, depending on those waiting times. So once you've made that kind of mental jump, then there's different pathways into it. So you then could be thinking about which clinic that you're looking at. And often people will have changed their clinic based on locations, recommendations, HFA you know, reported success rates. And then you're thinking, okay, that's one way in. And so you can then be engaging with that clinic and you've been given their price list. The alternative way in the way that we've kind of tried to pioneer with access is that you can, you know, you hear recommendations about access or you are going to clinic directly and you can contact access and say what's available to you. Um, in terms of those, you then register with access. There's no kind of obligation to proceed there. You do kind of all, you register with your chosen clinic. You go along to them. As James Nicolopoulos kind of outlined, there's some basic investigations you might have prior to coming along to that clinic. That clinic then fills in a medical questionnaire to then tell kind of access what it is. And then we assess your eligibility criteria and you can choose whether or not you want to be considered for the multi-cycle refund packages or just one of the multi-cycle packages. So even if you're not eligible for one of the refund packages, actually you can still be getting one of the multi-cycle ones. Because we know that in terms of success rates that you might need more than one cycle. And then you you know sign up and then you begin treatment just as normal. And then we're completely hands off. The whole interaction is between you and the clinic from that point on. So can you explain then, Scott, why a couple or an individual might decide to opt for either a multi-cycle or a refund package? What are the, what are the differences and why? what would maybe sway them to go one way or the other? The background pathway that everyone's eligible for. If you're under 45, you're going to be eligible for a multi-cycle. And essentially that's enabling you to have two or three cycles for a fixed price. So that is one path and say that's always eligible for it. But what most people are interested in is perhaps having, are they can have a refund. So if they're not successful and they don't have a baby, can they get their money back? And that's really giving them that sort of financial security or net. So that's what they might be interested in. But unfortunately, they may not be eligible for that for a variety of reasons, given their history. And actually, they can still into the, the multi-cycle package. So it's really giving them that sort of financial safety net. Say, well, actually, rather than me having outlaying all this money and not having a baby at the end of it, actually, can I try to have some insurance for that in terms of my financial liabilities? And that's kind of why. It's a big commitment, isn't it? when you're, you know, you're thinking of spending your kind of life savings on fertility treatment effectively. It's such a commitment. Exactly, and I think people will underestimate how much money might be involved in that as they think about, you know, because they often will think, oh, it's this first cycle, and they don't really think about the financial implications beyond that first cycle. But when you need more than one IVF cycle or two or three in terms of that and thinking of that cumulative success rates across three IVF cycles, you know, that's much more realistic for most people. The mass majority of people are not going to get pregnant in that first cycle. And so when you think of that bundle of care and the cost of that bundle of care, that's when it starts to become useful to think about the financial implications to use it as, say, as, as a family. Can you underwrite that? And you say, as you say, because you've taken your life savings 
to offset that and they're all gone and you still don't have a baby at the end of it. And, and if people are thinking, well, you just mentioned about the eligibility, how do I know? It's quite high, the number of patients. It's like 80 plus percent of patients who apply that are eligible, isn't it? For at least yeah, one so of the programmes, at least. Yeah. So No, exactly. So it's 80 to 90 percent of patients are eligible because we've got variable tiers. So it might be you're eligible 50 percent to 70 percent to full 100 percent, you know, refund. Or it's also kind of where you can have unlimited IVF across two years. So there's different tiers of that, which means that we can actually get a large proportion of the patients getting into one of these programs. And I say for that small number that aren't eligible for one of the programs or the refund programs, they can still have that multi-cycle. And again, with that, because Access is engaged with all the clinics on your behalf, it's actually still a financial saving compared to just paying the cycle outright for having two IVF cycles having two IVS cycles, that multi-cycle package, you're already up for the vast majority of patients with that. So just as an overview, there has been some change in the availability of the methods in which patients can access funded programmes. And I'm just keen to get your your thoughts on the changes that are coming in the industry. Yeah, so I, I think there's different models that have been used. And so on. one is essentially you've got a third party like access. So just like you, how we have you know travel insurance, car insurance, you know you take that and it's a third party who takes that risk from you. That's one model. Or the second model is that the programs where the clinic themselves creates a model and they then have it themselves. And you can see that there might be potential conflicts there in terms of thinking about how they may change their decision making based on people having sort of negative events occurring within that first cycle. Their prognosis might change as they go forward and therefore they may impact on their eligibility and continuation with those programs. So I think that there's those two different camps approach. And then thinking about kind of what's the best for patients. Well, classically, when we think about other insurance policies, which is really what you think of access is, you would third party that risk, both in terms of the patient third partying at that risk, but also with the clinic as well, because it means that there's no potential conflict there in terms of are we making clinical decisions that will have financial repercussions? And that's the big advantage is that the patients can be, once you're in range with the pathway, it then just runs and actually access is completely offset with that. And it's you and the clinic having that interaction. And if it's unsuccessful end, we'll be refunding your money. And we're not involved in that decision making or any of the clinical decision making along the way. So hearing how it all could work for you, hopefully, might start to help you working through you know, the choices that you're going to make. I think um, hearing Scott explain it with some of his stats was really interesting as well. Fascinating. And we'll definitely put a link to the um, paper that he talked about in the JAMA paper too. So Scott had referenced their TFP and I just wanted to highlight he was talking about the Fertility Partnership and that is the clinic group that he is the scientific director of. And it's a massive partnership, isn't it, with uh, lots of different clinics all over the UK. Now we're going to rejoin Scott and talk a bit more about the risks of OHSS. In particular, when we were looking at the research from the SAFE campaign that Kate and I were ambassadors for, there was a stat talking about 57% of women in the early stages of treatment were willing to resort to more aggressive treatment. And we were keen to find out from Scott whether he felt there was enough awareness about the risks of OHSS, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, for people and also why this approach to treatment isn't advised in the UK. There's a kind of a general lack of knowledge in terms of that. So when we think about OHSS, I think people forget that it's a spectrum of severity. So people often will focus on those kind of moderate and severe. And we know that with strategies that we can use to minimise that using agonist triggering, 
so you can essentially very safely prevent you having moderate or severe OHSS. But that still means that you can still have mild OHSS. And actually, when you think of those criteria, that can still mean that you've got large ovaries, you've got nausea and vomiting and diarrhea, and that's all classed as mild. So actually, but how many of us would like to go to work with having, you know, you know, discomfort, abdominal pain, <laughs> diarrhea and vomiting? And that, okay, and everything's been mild. But mm-hmm. actually, so if you're being more aggressive and you're running your risk of that, that's not a pleasant place to be at. So I think, although we've managed to kind of prevent severe and moderate OHSS, actually, I think the focus should be on kind of much less forms of that now as well to actually ensure that people are as fit and healthy as possible going through an IVF cycle and with minimal disruption to their lives. Uh, that's critical, both their work lives and family lives if they've got already have children. That's where we should be aiming for in the future. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I, I feel that I'm, when I'm consulting patients now, I'm almost, it's almost routine for me to say, you may well experience some symptoms of OHSS because it's so commonplace that those mild symptoms exist. And uh, I'd say a vast percentage of my patients do experience that. Um, so, it, but it's a shame that it's, it, it, it is at that point. And, and like you say, it should be that actually it's more, that they can go about their lifestyle and do all the normal things I'm really while glad you they're said navigating that because I do think, especially treatments. as women, knowing what we tolerate in terms of, you know, if we've been through months and months and years and years of, of, of hard and difficult period mm. pain, it might just be thought that, okay, this is just part of what I have to deal with. And, you know, knowing that there are the risks and like you say, really making it clear about the risks of mild OHSS because Kate and I do see conversations about it in, in our communities. and Yeah, I think it makes and, a critical you know, impact on your day-to-day living. So that's it. But the focus has always been about moderate and severe OHSS. And, you know, do you require hospitalisation? The HFEA has talked about that as well in terms of COVID further impact on, you know, that with NHS. But actually, I'm very keen of let's try to achieve this as not through kind of minimal, but just appropriate ovarian stimulation and setting patients' expectations to be able to, to manage that their IDF cycle for them and give them the best possible results. If treatment has been halted, because we have heard, um, especially when I think treatment had restarted, we were hearing people saying that they were maybe verging on the mild and then they were having their, maybe um, they were being advised to go for frozen embryo transfer rather yeah, than... Yeah, freeze yeah. um, what, what do you say if people are kind of at that point and they're kind of faced with this and, and feeling that it's not quite what they expected and it's not quite what they thought they wanted... So, so I think one of the key things is that you manage expectations right from the start and say, and it's quite a dynamic process, but you need to make sure, because I think that's the that disappointment that someone feels that they're going for a fresh transfer and suddenly they've responded excessively and they're having to have a freeze-all. So that's almost like a fail. They might say that as a failure when actually it may not be. You know, it's both a good outcome, you know, in terms of they've, got, they've responded well to drugs, which might not have been anticipated. But if you'd actually set their expectations right up at the front and say, well, look, this is what we think might happen. And actually, but if you are doing, you know, you've got an excessive response, we can use an agonist trigger that's going to be excessive. But look, that means that you've responded really well and we can, you know, take those embryos through to blastocyst and then we'll vitrify them. And then we can very quickly move on to a frozen embryo transfer because, again, people are going to worry about what's the gap between that fresh cycle and the frozen. But actually, if you've done an agonist trigger and then you've got, you know, your bleed sort of five to ten days later, they can start HRT progressing into frozen embryo transfer immediately. And actually, the data suggests that the faster you do your frozen embryo transfer, the higher the success rates are. So this kind of unnecessary wait. And again, 
it's about communicating with patients and managing their expectations and reducing that timeline as much as possible for them. I think it's really critical because it's people just worry about time running away from them and that's a real problem. And you very nicely lead me into my next question about time is with with the research that the Save campaign did where it showed that almost half of the sample, I think it was 45%, of women felt more in a rush to get on with their treatment. How important do you think it is that it's really very clearly explained to them the emotional toll of fertility treatment? How much emphasis do we do you feel that we currently give to that? And should we absolutely be giving more? What's your impression on that? So I think it's critical. I think it's first and foremost we need to make sure because the reality is that we put women and partners to some extent on a roller coaster. And there's a whole load of touch points across that. You know, am I, you know, what's my ovarian reserve? Am I responding to the drugs? How many eggs have got? Did they all fertilize? Did they make it to day three? Did they make it to blastocyst? Two weeks of waiting. So these are all kind of very clear touch points in terms of kind of a roller coaster. And so making sure that patients are aware that they're about to embark on that roller coaster is critical. <laughs> and then secondly, also knowing where they can go and seek help for and signposting and people will want to explore support at different points and different mechanisms through that, either through you know information seeking, counsellors, psychologists, coaches. There's a whole variety of strategies that are suitable for different individuals. But they need to be aware of all of that right at the beginning. And so our job is to make sure that they're are aware of where they can get those resources and then reiterating that throughout that journey because it might change and their needs may change so i think knowing that is critical and then also but in terms of thinking about there's this urgency to have treatment and i accept that that and we've showed that from about 34 onwards there's about a 0.3 percent decline in success rates per month so you can quantify it on a monthly basis and so enabling treatment sooner and faster but in a way that you can cope with is essential and that's really, I think, what you guys are doing a fantastic job of it, is empowering women to have that knowledge, where are the various sources they can get. And then as clinicians, we should be reiterating that at every touch point that we have with them along that journey. And the whole, the whole team from nurses to embryologists should be doing that. Well, on, on that note, then, when we're talking about explaining the importance of managing expectations, we also do want to highlight that they can't rush their decisions and, and highlight the importance of making informed choices. So how do you find that balance? Because when people are you know, so aware of their biological clock and they've been faced with what they've been faced with, especially coming out of the pandemic, it's such a, a delicate thing that you're, you're managing really when people, especially if they've had failed cycles. Yeah, and so there is that, say, that balance. So if the underlying concept is that the longer they wait, the success rates are going to decline. And I say there's really robust evidence for that, for that. So then it's thinking about how can we guide them to make that informed decision that works for them as a, you know, in the longer term. And we recognize that people will make different decisions. So some people may say, well, yeah, let's do another IVF cycle. Others will say, no, actually, we've had enough. We want to explore other ways of having a family through adoption or fostering, or we want to consider egg donation. And again, everyone will have different pathways and different journeys to their final destination. And I think it's just making sure that everyone's aware of all those options and giving them the support and necessary tools to be able to make that decision. Because you and I don't need to live with their decision. You know, they need to do that and they have to be super comfortable with it. And so that they look back in five years time and they realize that 
they don't regret it. And I think what people regret is is if they didn't know that an option existed for them. I think that's the biggest thing. Or that they were misled and they were given the wrong advice. And so actually, I think the key is make them aware of all the possible options and permutations through that journey and give them the appropriate facts, which is again, which is you're doing and you know, your previous episodes have shown that, then they can make the right decisions for themselves. And that might be a different decision from someone else makes, but it's right for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Earlier, you mentioned about how women are less likely to get pregnant on the first cycle as opposed to second or third cycle. And we know that the research very much shows that by second, third cycle, particularly, you're more likely to conceive and be successful. And certainly the fertility industry encourages patients to think about IVF now as a course of treatments. That's something that I'm really always trying to get through to my patients as well, is that it's more than just one cycle. It's actually a course and you should view it like that. Ultimately, what Access Fertility is offering with its plans is that peace of mind that actually you can have the security of long term treatment and treatment plan in place but without the financial worries as much. Would you say that's massively important to people? Is it something they should be considering? Yeah, if I can just clarify, before we move on to that, just if I can clarify sort of the success rates per cycle. So in terms of kind of success rates per cycle, you're actually more successful with your first cycle. So you're you're more likely to be successful. If you take 100 women, I'm one of the hundred, you put just to say wall. you are. Like, yeah. but why, don't, why don't we <laughs> see that the then? Yeah. So it's just kind of a, it's a concept. So we've published this, we've used all the UK data. We published a paper in, in JAMA a few years ago that showed this really nicely. So if you take 100 women, you might get, say, 35% of them pregnant with go number one. So you get 35 out of your 100, leaving 65 not pregnant and not having a baby. If they do a second IVF cycle, the success rates of that second IVF cycle will be about 34%. So it's just slightly less. Not not hugely, but overall it's 34% rather than 35% in that first cycle. And so you then have that 34% of that 65 women having a baby. And then it, there's going to be a residual population and who come through for a third cycle. And actually, they might only get about 33% of them pregnant. So actually, as you go through sequential IVF cycles, the percentage of people who get pregnant from each of those individual cycles goes down slightly. But the cumulative approach across, because you now had three cycles of treatment, the cumulative of the original 100 that you started with has gone up massively. Because you're now up at, you know, say 75 out of your original 100 have had a baby. But people often misinterpret that as being the chance of success go up with each sequential one. Actually, no, the chance goes down with each individual cycle. The more cycles you need to get pregnant, the lower the chance that is. I mean, that makes perfect sense. But then why is it that as the fertility industry does state you are that you do need to look at IVF as more than one cycle? Because of that. So I think it's this cumulative, as you said, it's having a kind of the cumulative live birth rates across multiple cycles goes up. And I think people differentiate between the kind of the within IVF cycle success rates, including for the fresh and the frozen across multiple cycles of treatment. The easiest way I think about it is to think about 100 women sitting in front of me how do we get as many of them as pregnant as possible? Actually, the key is to do more IVF cycles. Which makes sense. That's always yeah, going to be the key. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah perfect sense. Yeah. There's a really good model that's available that you know your you know, listeners can access. Put an opus, OPIS into Google, uh, IVF, and you'll bring it up. And you can put it in there. I'm a 35-year-old. I've been trying for two years. I'm not ovulating. I have unexplained infertility. I've never been pregnant before. I don't have a problem with my tubes. And do you have a male factor in problems? So no, and you're going to use IVF and it'll calculate your results for you. 
So it will say that, you know, chances of you getting pregnant after your first IVF cycle, all the way out to your sixth cycle. And it just shows that, you know, kind of at cycle number one, it's if you have 100 women, 39% of those will be pregnant. But by go number two, it's 59% of them will have had a baby. And by go number three, it's 71%. But that's the total of those original 100 that started, you've got 72. And so it's that reducing success rates per subsequent cycle. But it's a great resource that's been, you know, freely available, uses all of the UK data, and people can play with it and change it how they want it for themselves. That's that's great. What a great resource. We'll definitely put a link to it in the uh, the show notes. But that does make me ask the question then, if that's the case, why would I then go for a multi-cycle package? Because we're talking about the idea of peace of mind and the long-term yeah. expense. But ultimately, if it works first time, you've paid above the odds, haven't you? Yeah, so, yeah that's right. So you think about it in terms of those. So some patients who need less treatment or, you know, essentially, you know, subsidize those patients who need more treatment. So if we go back to kind of 100 women, you're right. So using this 35-year-olds who've been trying for two years with unexplained infertility, only 40% of them are going to get go pregnant on go number one. So six of women are still going to need to, uh, that second cycle. And it's for those that those multi-cycle packages work, both in terms of the refund bonds or in terms of that multi-cycle. Because if they need two cycles, well, you know, you've got 60% of your original 100, but there's still 40 women who are not pregnant. And then they're going to need a third cycle. And that's where, you know, at the end of that third cycle, you know, you've then got 72% of them pregnant, but that's still 28 who don't. And actually, they're the ones who get their money back. So that's kind of how it's useful to think about in terms of those numbers. So what we set out to do with the podcast, and, and we're obviously having this conversation to really um, in, enlighten people on their options. And you mentioned that we'd previously spoken about the postcode lottery. And this is about self-funding and what access fertility provide. We're always wanting people to have the conversations with their clinic rather than be searching online. And when you've just talked about this model, for example, and we, we know that the people that are trying to conceive, whether they listen to this podcast or others and they're in the Instagram community or whatever, they are so informed and they are also pretty overwhelmed because there is a lot of information out there. And our objective is to always try and give people evidence-based, you know, credible information with credible experts. But I'm also keen to know is in your role as scientific director of one of the leading fertility groups, whether you're confident that patients are getting the best advice when it comes to how they could self-fund, like if they come to see their fertility consultant and they say, well, I've looked at this Opus IVF model and it says that I should get pregnant in one round. You're suggesting I do multi-cycle or however the conversation goes. Do you feel that patients are getting the best advice when it comes to what they're doing when they're self-funding? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it comes back to managing those expectations. So I, I use that Opus IVF in the consultations. So it's, the, you know, we know that it's UK kind of averages and therefore, you know, one clinic might be better or slightly less successful. But patients often have unrealistic expectations in terms of the overall success rate. So if I asked a 35-year-old who's been trying for two years, what's your chance of success with IVF? You know, with one cycle, they may have a completely different number in their head, you know, 80%, because, you know, they've heard that you were successful, Natalie. And, well, actually, my friend Natalie got pregnant with one cycle. Well, it must be nine out of ten times that that's the norm and actually you can show them the graph and say well look just so you're aware actually that's not the case it's 40 percent and if you do two cycles it's 60 percent and three cycles that's it and if you keep going we'll hopefully have you having a baby you know you can see here that success rates even up to six cycles which you know is 87 percent so we will get there you know with this bundle of care that you know kate talks about and it's this sequential treatments but you might need more than one 
And then it all comes back to here's the options that you've got available to you. You can do this, actually have one cycle and then, or you can then, you know, come back and reevaluate things and then think, okay, well, that was unsuccessful. Now I want to hedge my risk and actually have that financial secure net and you can re-engage with access at that time. That's an option for you. Or you might want to do it all at the beginning. And again, people will have different pathways into that. And it's then just thinking about what works for them and where they are with it in terms of, do, are they risk adverse right at the start? Or do they want to incur a bit more risk as they're kind of going through that process? But the key is that they're aware about it. And I think it all comes back to managing patients' expectations. I think that's a key thing, both in terms of the support, but also realistic expectations for success rates. Um, so that not to try to manage their, their disappointment, but then they know that actually that didn't work. It wasn't, you know, the chances are the majority of times it doesn't work. And actually, let's go straight into cycle two. We don't have a six months of recovery where we have to get our head back around the fact that that was unsuccessful because you know, that was never predicted or that was never discussed. I think that's a key thing. Hopefully that gives you a bit more of an idea of how these packages work. And I suppose one thing that we really just want to highlight is that the harsh reality of all of this is that fertility treatment doesn't guarantee you a baby. No, you are absolutely right. And I think it's important to be really aware that research is changing all the time and we're learning so much more about success rates for treatment. And equally, it's so important to remember that we're all individual and that you need to make the right decision for you. We all know stories, sadly, of people that have had many cycles. If you follow different people online, Jessica Hepburn, for example, is an incredible campaigner for awareness about IVF. And Jessica herself went through 11 rounds of unsuccessful IVF and has kind of made it her mission to educate and create a really important narrative about managing expectations, understanding what might not be, and understanding what else could be if your route to parenthood isn't as straightforward. So whenever we're talking about fertility treatment, it's so important to be mindful of the people it doesn't work for. We are now, however, going to rejoin Scott to find out how he feels about all the research that we do online. Dr. Google can be our friend or can be our foe. We wanted to know whether he thinks it's a good thing that we now have access to so much information. The reality is that people can look through a variety of resources and I think my job is to be able to guide them through and say, well, you've read that one paper, but here's the other nine papers that say something different. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's what, you know, Kate, my job, your job on here on the podcast is to make people that those isolated things are within a big, broader scientific literature. And it's putting all of that into context that applies to you as an individual. And so I don't have a problem. People will come with a big list of questions. And, you know, I've read this paper and I say, well, that's, you know, either they may have a, a new idea or a new take on it that, you know, it's something that has just come out. And then it's being able to say, well, actually, yeah, this works for you or it doesn't work for you or it's not applicable to you. So I don't ever get dismayed with people kind of doing that. I think that's to be encouraged because again, it comes to back to them. They feel empowered to be able to ask these questions and be in a relaxed environment where they can actually ask anything. It's not, no question is too silly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, for most of the time, I've probably heard the question before. I think they, they think yeah. they're asking something brand new and novel, but you know, we'll, we'll have heard it probably 10 times that day already. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly when there's a big media storm and actually you see something news hit the headlines everyone's asking the same question so you know the big one just now is obviously about covid vaccine. vaccines everyone's asking about covid vaccines should be getting it 
and I know you guys talked about this recently, and the data is really robust. You know, reality, pregnant women do really badly if they get COVID, and we want to avoid pregnant women getting COVID. So get vaccinated in advance. I put a post on Instagram after the British Fertility Society and ARCs brought out their new guidelines. And I had quite a lot of questions about that. Not all of them the best comments, because obviously the anti-vaxxers out there. But it was so interesting to be able to share the RCOG's evidence as well, saying that one in 10 pregnant women who get COVID are unfortunately the ones that are admitted to ITU. And that's staggering. You know, one in 10, staggering statistic. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's the reality of it. You know, as, as a working obstetrician, you know, going college, you see these people who, who are being admitted to intensive care. And actually, it's been, you know, it was potentially preventable. The US took a different strategy right from the start. Everyone was getting vaccines there, including, you know, potentially pregnant women. The UK was a bit slower, then reversed the guidelines when they saw the data. But actually, you only need to look after women in intensive care and you realise how awful that can be for her and her family. And actually, why are we you know, trying to do everything to prevent that? So I realise you got trolled and so on on social media, Kate, but actually the problem is that the evidence is really robust. And actually, people, it's to engage their brains and actually think about where they're getting that data from and the scientific literature is actually where they need to get and then make an informed choice, but get it from the reputable sources and data rather than, you know, your favourite influencer. But the great information that came out um, from BFS and ARCs is that 130,000 women in, which was interesting, in Scotland and in the US have been followed up during their pregnancy and there was showing no risk, which is fantastic news. Yeah, completely you know, safe and so in terms of that. And actually, we've got all that UK data. It's one of the projects we're just working on just now is looking at COVID and pregnancy because we've got, you know, every pregnant women's health records and we'll be able to follow up those children and show long-term safety for them as well but what we do see is that kind of risk of pregnancy complications unfortunately that's turning because there's been a real drive in terms of kind of IVF units everyone's been recommending you get you know the vaccines and we're now at a stage where actually most of our patients unless there's some reason that they're not having a vaccine and you know through choice they all recognize the safety and the implications of it because more and more people are now getting to know someone a young person who's been admitted to hospital and become unwell with it and ended up in intensive care. And that wasn't there at the beginning of the year, but it's there now. People are now starting to see that and the you know young people being affected. And there's more and more stories of that. And I think people are now kind of very conscious. So although you got, say, slightly trolled, I think that's a very small minority. And the data, data safety is really, you know, there for people. And so it should be reassured. And thank you for reinforcing it, Scott, because we can't really say it enough on the podcast. And that's why we do keep talking about it. So thank you. And thank you for explaining what you have done about people's access uh, to access to ensure that they are as informed as they can be. That's what we wanted to um, just spell out in this episode, because we know, sadly, that we are seeing more and more people having to self-fund. And we just want to make sure that you really know what your options are and why it's worth thinking really thinking this through so Scott thank you for your time my pleasure thanks again for all the work you guys do I just need to give you a little bit of an insight into what happened with this recording because I had to actually leg it and pick up my son and left Kate and Scott chatting away and they were still there when I came back now <laughs> all admittedly my son is only around the corner playing tennis but um, you enjoyed that conversation I mean Scott gave such insight in how as a clinician he works as well as a researcher which I thought was so interesting wasn't it? It was so interesting I love chatting to him and I so pleased that he told us about the Opus IVF site as well which I'm absolutely going to be using um, with all of my patients now where you can really gauge 
your success rates at IVF treatments and that will give you a really good indication so yeah um, I super loved having a chat with him it was great and I know that we talked a lot about cycle success and how the whole program approach works and I think from my point of view as a former patient if we'd have been in a position where we had to self-fund knowing that there was that peace of mind from knowing what the figure was going to be that's presented when you do this multi-cycle idea of a package rather than going along and then there being more shock costs and it just spiraling out of control I always think of like grand designs or something like that when they're like what was your budget and then at the end they go and how much did you spend and you know they've they've spent an extra 50 grand and that's how I feel from the conversations that I think I've had with people you know when they've admitted to me how much they've they've spent I mean it goes into tens of thousands of pounds sadly and so we hope that we are giving you really good food for thought with this in terms of what your options are As always, make sure you check out the show notes for this episode where we will put all the details of Access Fertility and the model that Scott mentioned, that Opus IVF model, and we'll put links to Jessica Hepburn, who we also talked about. If you're wanting to find out more about Access Fertility and speak to them directly, just visit accessfertility.co.uk. Make sure you've subscribed to the Fertility Podcast in your podcast app of choice so that you don't miss our upcoming episodes and more collaborative episodes like this one as we are going to continue to talk to more organizations within the fertility space so that you can hear more about them and understand more about what they can do and how it can help you and ultimately if it's the right thing for you in what you're looking to do to start or complete your family then hopefully we've helped with that next step which is what this podcast is all about thank you as always for your support and until the next time 